Amen. Yes, Father, we acknowledge this morning, in order for this song to be true of us, to be a description of our own experience, it first requires that we be raised from the dead. No one can see unless they first be alive. Lord, it requires that our spiritual eyes be open. <clears throat> no blind man can appreciate beauty until he can see and behold that which is glorious. Lord, and our ears must be open to hear the truth proclaimed of your Scripture. Our hearts must yearn that we retain and apply the beauties of your salvation. Once your Spirit has done this transforming work in our souls, then we behold you as beautiful. We see you for who you truly are. We recognize our sin as wretched, disgusting. We turn from that which you have declared hell-worthy of your judgments against your nature and character, and therefore wicked and godless. And we turn towards you, the standard of righteousness, holiness, wisdom, beauty, and truth. We behold you in Jesus Christ, our Sovereign, and our Savior who took on flesh, dwelt among us. The Word made flesh, the Father, revealed in the person of the Son, who came to proclaim the authority of his Father, declaring repent and turn. The third person of the Trinity anointing his work poured out upon his baptism and then later poured out upon his church. We pray, Spirit, that you would be poured out on us, your people, yet this day, that we might behold you in your beauty and that in beholding you, we would be transformed into the same image according to the glory of God and that as we are transformed, that our worship, our meditation, our confession, and our actions would be all the more pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Amen. This morning we turn to the Word of God as we open the pages of Scripture. It is an act of worship for us to bow our souls before the authority of God's sufficient and incredibly beautiful Word. I encourage you to do that with me this morning by turning to our second to last in our series of Psalm 119, stanza 21, Sin and Shin, in Psalm 119, verses 161 through 168. We continue to chronicle one sermon per stanza, this incredible epic acrostic song extolling the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word and also revealing the depths of the heart of the author who has grown to love and appreciate and thus his high language and his reverential heart for what God has revealed in the scriptures that he had thus far. We, re we uh, recount in the perspective of covenant history that the little that he did have pales in comparison to the fullness of the canon we now have, which begs this question. If the affections of the author were so moved with the Torah and perhaps the writings that he had in his hand and in his heart, how much more value and joy ought we to express for the Word of God and the completed form which we hold in our hands today? So may this Word then convict us and call the hearer to spiritual maturity and to a heart that is in line proportional to 
the value of his scripture. The psalmist recognizes the word of God is sufficient for the trial of tyranny in our text today as he opens talking about the trial he faces in the form of princes who persecute him. Thus we have the 21st stanza, Sin and Shin, the trial of tyranny, Psalm 119, 161 through 168. In reverence for God's word, with that introduction, would you stand this morning and behold, in the hearing of the people, the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God, Psalm 119, 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Second to last in our sermon series, as I mentioned, the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which has two forms. I think it's called phonemes or something like that. Two different pronunciations. So depending on where the accent is, this letter appears in two ways. Thus, the kind of bifold title, Sin and Shin, 21st Hebrew letter. As we recall, uh, per the pattern of the entire psalm, opens each, each of the eight original verses in Hebrew. This 21st and second to last stanza of this greatest acrostic psalm in all of literature completes or continues to extol the ground for the psalmist's assurance in the face of trial. And it also evidences, I submit to you today, a growing maturity in his own heart. The psalmist, according to the structure of the psalm, according to the structure of a life journey motif, could be understood as something of a spiritual journey or journal of his growth. And here, he summarizes the priorities of the spiritually mature and well-tempered soul, trusting in the Lord, no matter how formidable the trial he faces. This is the heart of a true hero's epic poem. There is a form of literature called the hero's epic or something like that, where people extol at great length and with poetic devices the exploits of some mythical figure, some important historical champion, something that is to be elevated and celebrated in the culture of the people. So these epic poems occur through history in different forms. But what is often overlooked in a sinful or short-sighted or fleshly representation of the heroic exploits of a famous individual is the heart that it takes to truly be a hero, if you will. What is the character that undergirds legitimate, praiseworthy acts and deeds? What are things that will survive the trial by fire based upon later? The New Testament scriptures tells us that our works will be tested in the fire, so to speak, of the judgment and the omniscience of God one day before his throne. There are very few works that survive that test and that blaze. They must be pure, they must be honoring to him, and they must come from a heart akin to that of the psalmist. Thus, as we see the heart of the psalmist expressed here, it helps us to understand the heart of a hero, if you will. Who are your heroes of the faith? Our imaginations might jump to 
Moses commanding Pharaoh, let my people go. Imagine David staring down the giant Goliath with nothing but faith in the crude weapons of a shepherd boy in his hand. We have learned or recalled recently Joseph and his resolute holiness and righteousness in the face of prison, consoled only by his clean conscience when his righteousness earned him condemnation and betrayal, at least in the short term, tempted by his master's wife. Nevertheless, due to a heart that was stronger than temptation and stronger than trial, Joseph endured. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, their Babylonian names, they forced the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, to choose between swallowing his pride or throwing them into the fiery furnace. They chose number two. Yet with hearts resolute, they endured the flames supernaturally, though they didn't know it at the time, as Jesus himself caused them to pass through the fire unharmed. Paul stands confidently in the course of the book of Acts before one great king, a ruler, magistrate, in the Roman empirical forces after another, calling them to repentance, one by one, up the chain of appeal, all the way, presumably, to Caesar himself. And then we turn to Hebrews 11 and the exploits and the character of those who have done great things for the Lord. And the list goes on. Similar accounts of faith remain fascinating and inspiring across the centuries. In part, why do these stick out? Because the character and this high caliber of strength of soul is so rare. What sets apart those who are truly worthy of a biography or whose work is to be celebrated as that which advances the kingdom and glorifies the Lord? Well, it's the kind of life that springs from integrity and the boldness of conviction that is rooted in an unshakable foundation, the assurance of the sufficiency and the glory, the surpassing greatness of the Lord revealed in His Word. Psalm 119 provides us answers to what makes a heart, or what makes a heroic heart, if you will, in the form of a testimony of godly maturity gleaned from a lifelong dedication to the Word of God as superior and sufficient. A lifelong dedication to the Word of God as superior and sufficient. That is the testimony of the heroic heart. This morning, let me give you a heading. Spiritual maturity, indeed, spiritual maturity sufficient for the test of tyranny, the persecution of princes, as our psalmist records here, requires the following. So spiritual maturity requires the following. Number one, verses 161 through 163, sanctified passions. Desires of the heart that are conformed to God's word. There will be three, awe, joy, and love considered. Secondly, spiritual maturity requires a blessed assurance, both the blessing and the confidence of the gospel is to be realized in the heart of one who will stand in the day of trial, 164, 165. And then finally, spiritual maturity requires a fortified or a strengthened obedience. 166 through 168, our author once again explores this theme of obedience. We find that faith, love, and theology reinforce his faithfulness, his obedience to the Lord. That's our outline today, and let us consider point one more closely. Spiritual maturity, sufficient for the test of tyranny, requires sanctified passions. 
requires a change of heart. And there are three examples that our author gives. There's a change of heart with respect to awe, secondly, joy, and thirdly, love. 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Princes persecute me without cause. You can see the distress that would come upon someone facing a situation, a persecution under conditions like this. Notice, it's without cause. It's not that the, he has been found guilty before a trial of his peers. It's not that he has been submitted and as, a, of, as a criminal, a jurisprudence has been upheld. Or it's not that he lives in a society where he can trust that the king, the ruler, the highest in power and authority, worldly speaking, will follow the rule of law with integrity. No. Indeed, disorder has visited his experience, and he lives under the sway and influence and tyranny of princes who may well persecute him and certainly have, in his case, without cause, without reason. A capricious uh, tyranny is what he is facing. So under these conditions, truly, it would be frightening indeed. So what can give uh, the psalmist strength to stand in spite of the wickedness that knows no bounds, it would appear, at least practically speaking. Well, it all hinges on what we find to be awesome. What do you think is awesome? Of course, the word awesome is thrown away as a hyperbolic adjective, uh, loosely. But when we really think of what holds our attention and what we find incredible or awesome or powerful or great, we're getting closer to this concept of awe. Matthew Henry uh, quotes in his commentary, here's a quote from his commentary, those whose hearts stand in awe of God's word will rather endure the wrath of man than break the law of God. Those whose hearts stand in awe of God's word will rather endure the wrath of man than break the law of God. Most of us in our sin are convinced to break the law of God just by the promise of self-indulgence, by some temptation to sin or walk in the flesh. But walking in the Spirit and honoring God does not just require a resolution to stand in the face of persecution. It requires much more. A resolution to stand strong, I'm sorry, a resolution to stand in the face of temptation requires much more. A resolution to stand, indeed, in the face of persecution. This is a more uh, difficult test, indeed. So what can give the psalmist strength when a prince who has the power and the ability to bring harsh consequences upon him and is not bound in his own soul by integrity or righteousness threatens to undo him, to kill him, to harm him, or to cause him to suffer in some way? What gives him the resolution to stand? Well, he has more awe for the word of God than he does fear for the power of the prince. The man whose heart stands in awe of God's word, greater still than the awesome power of the governing authority, will stand in the day of trial and persecution and refuse to break the law of the greater sovereign. <clears throat> Others stand in awe of princes in our day and age. Little wonder, as the magistrate can and often does wield, even in our modern day, great power. But in doing so, they can make the great error of dismissing the power and authority of Jesus Christ. 
And if we fix our minds or our attention is obsessed and blinded or distracted by the greatness of the wickedness in our day, we may begin to edge out or our mind may be uh, lacking in the meditation needed of the greatness and the glory and power of God's word. To ascribe a terrifying power to someone is a form of worship. So we need to be extra careful in this regard. Terror or fear of something is to implicitly affirm a power greater than us. And if that, if that terror is coupled with anxiety and fear, is to implicitly affirm a power greater than God. Now the New Testament has something to say about this. In uh, the Gospel of Luke, the early church is facing conditions similar to the psalmist. Luke prepares his readers to stand before kings and people in authority and to do so with confidence. But how will they stand? Well, by heeding this counsel, Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, the instructions of the Lord. Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Think of the before and after picture of Peter. Before the Spirit fills his heart with awe of the risen and ascended Savior. He is shaking in his boots and he is confessing lies before a servant girl who says, wait, aren't you one of his disciples? I never knew the man. Three times he swears with a curse and an oath till the cock crows in fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic words, you will deny me three times. With heart heavy, slinking away, now with shame and cowardice flooding his soul, Peter hides and cowers because the powers of that day are so great and they seem to threaten even his Messiah with crucifixion. Indeed, they did. Peter, though, did he have sufficient sor a sufficient source to stand in the face of these persecuting princes like Pilate and Herod? Absolutely, he did. He could have gone to the scriptures of old and considered them with awesome, the awesome power of Isaiah 53 that said, like a lamb led to slaughter, so the Messiah must suffer and die in his place. And he could have stand with resolute worship and honored the moment and willingly accepted the consequences of being counted with Jesus Christ. Now, after the Holy Spirit filled his heart and he began to proclaim the, the testimony and witness of what Jesus had done, and he coupled that with the Old Testament scriptures, we see a transformed Peter. We see a Peter who stands in awe of God's word, defying authorities when they defy the law of God and boldly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord to anyone who will listen and even to those who refuse, right up to the religious leaders and the political leaders as well, who have the power to bind him in chains and to flog him. And what do they consider that? A great privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ who had suffered for them. So what is the great difference? Peter found that the fear of the Lord and the awesome fulfillment of his prophecies and the truth that Jesus had risen from the dead conquering and defying even the grave was sufficient to stand that awe as a sufficient source and encouraging a well of faith to, so that he might stand in the face of great persecution. Thus, spiritual maturity to stand in the face of tyranny requires awe, awe of God's word. Secondly, joy. 162, I rejoice in your word. Of course, rejoice is that verb expression of our joy. 
like one who finds great spoil. So some of you kids uh, are treasure hunter amateurs, and a few of you I know have metal detectors. So my boys will go on treasure hunting expeditions. And uh, the bar of treasure is kind of low in our household. Anything metal and interesting will fall into the category of worthy of finding and digging and showing off to your buddies and your family and so forth. And uh, I think Israel has actually been able to find a stash of pennies he had buried some time ago as well. And that was an exciting day in the Carlton household. Things can get a little boring. I'd, those long summer days, and we need a little diversion at times, I guess. Uh, suffice it to say, imagine how much greater joy still if the boys were out treasure hunting, or your kids were out there, and this happens in Europe sometimes, and you got that beep, 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 and then you start to dig, and pretty soon you find a small cache, or maybe it's large, of abandoned Roman golden coins from way back in the day. The antiquity of these metal uh, pieces, these money pieces, as well as their intrinsic weight in gold, you've dug up a fortune. Imagine your response. Oh, you think about what you could spend the money on. You think about how incredible this find was. You post it online. You tell your friends. You quickly uh, contain you know, and secure your treasure and your find, lest uh, you lose it or others would steal it. This is the kind of joy that the psalmist says, must terminate or be applied to the word of God in order for spiritual maturity to stand the test of life. And scriptures reinforce this all through the Bible. In Job 28, the wisdom that's gleaned from a diligent study of scripture is like, according to the author, pawing with limited and crude tools through the ore. You have to do so carefully. But what are you looking for? Surpassing treasure great uh, crystals or diamonds, or a vein of precious metal, gold and silver. This is worth the effort and the time, and this is worth the dedication of your life, the promise of great riches. This is a metaphor used throughout Scripture to describe the surpassing, awesome beauty of the Word of God. In Matthew, we have the parables of great wealth in chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. The kingdom is compared to things such as this. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew writes, recording Jesus' words, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. When we come to Jesus Christ, truly, it requires a repentance and a turning from our life, our old life. It is a crucifixion, it is a death to the flesh, it is, a, is, it is a taking up the cross and following him. And by short-sighted analysis, it is counterintuitive to our humanity. It is, requires sometimes the abandonment of our friends and the ridicule of our family in many cases, or, as we see in context of our passage today, the tyranny of princes. What gives us the grace to endure this? Well, it's not just gritting our teeth and endurance and survival. It's not just digging in our heels with a resolution that I will not waver. It is that all we talked about, but it's also a greater joy. We can suffer this side of glory because we have a treasure beyond compare and stronger than death. Beyond compare to anything that sin or the world can promise, and it is a treasure so secure, it is stored up for us 
in the vault of glory in heaven one day, and no man, the devil himself, cannot steal it away. This is a joy that floods the soul of those who endure difficult times. Why can they count it joy? The, again, the testimony of saints of old, like those listed in Hebrews, when all their worldly goods were confiscated because they had greater treasure still. The scriptures say, of course, Matthew records this as well, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a link between that which we value the most and our joy. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. The wicked king might wage a war of aggression on a neighboring nation, and this prince might gather for himself the great spoils of war. And he uh, smiles with glee as he looks upon his holdings, as his lands and his wealth, and the relative economy increases as he confiscates his neighbor's gold. Princes like this uh, are motivated to pursue riches at the cost of God's law and at the cost of human blood. We are different, though. We rejoice at something else, not at riches gained at the expense of the word of God, but the riches that are found in the law of God itself. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. When you dig through the word of God, you have there an endless wealth. You have a mine from which treasures can be gleaned as you faithfully and consistently plumb its depths for what God has placed there. This treasure language is universal across human history and the human experience. We are wired, we are captivated by, and we ascribe value and pay great sums of money for that which is rare, resplendent. Think of a diamond, think of a, a gold bar, enduring, beautiful, uh, something that is pure and something that's expensive and something that improves our lives to some great degree. These are the things that are the standard and measure of value, and they're all metaphors the Scripture uses for the law of God. Uh, yesterday, the boys and I were watching a street preacher, a 16-minute sermon off the top of his head in a busy street in New York City, and it was really something. The young man did an excellent job, an unassuming man, not a very, you know, very slight, not a very commanding voice, but very eloquent in his speech, gifted and his uh, words were uh, constantly referring to the scriptures and calling for repentance. And he was doing so in a poetic, prophetic, and a, a, as a preacher. And, and it really stirred my soul. I love street preaching. And as I was thinking to myself, if I had the family there, was walking along the street, what might I do? We've done this before. I always pause if we have the time and try to listen. To the degree that the message is sound, I begin to add my amen and try, try to draw attention to this. None of that happened with this man was there. I think he had one person with him passing out tracks. Every second, third person might have taken that track out of courtesy. What if that lady had been handing out $100 bills? You know, I, the richest man in all of the United States, I have on a mission to pass out my wealth $100 bill at a time. Step right up, step right up. Could you imagine the crowd that would gather? They would flock, the word would get out, someone would text on social media, and pretty soon there'd be, the line would be thousands of people long, if not just, you know, depending on their scruples or, the, uh, or, or their own personal ethics, just beating him down and taking all the $100 bills out of his backpack. But not so in this case. Though this man was passing out something in the form of the gospel, immeasurably more valuable than a $100 bill, most everybody passed, blind to the truth, 
and busy to get to their next pizza joint, their next meeting schedule, or the place where they're doing some shopping, they're on a sightseeing tour, needed to get to the Statue of Liberty, whatever it was. Hustle and bustle of ordinary worldly activity on the streets, quite the picture. Meanwhile, the only way of salvation is being proclaimed in their hearing and no one will stop to listen for so much as 20 seconds to hear that they're a sinner, but there is a way to escape the hellfire that they deserve and will get on the final day. This is the blindness of the human heart. This is the wickedness of the unregenerate soul. This is the flesh and its desires, so wayward and lost, that must be conformed to the truth of what's actually valuable and the stakes that we face when we die. The gospel has the ability to reset the frame of our mind, and so does the word of God, and that's why it's so precious. And within it, the truth of God's word that proclaims to us that we are a wicked person who stand condemned in the face of the holy, yet through Christ alone is our salvation. As our eyes are opened to the value of this, we begin to cling to the diamonds and the precious metals within God's scripture with all our heart because our eternal soul depends on it. When the scriptures talk about surpassing riches, they speak of streets of gold and a city whose foundation stones are gems that extend through the entire plain, yet here we are content to crawl around on hands and knees in the filth of sin and scrounge for a little self-affirmation and fame and personal uh, you know, uh, indulgence in this or that or the other little glinting and fake little treasure thing that the enemy sinfully tantalize, uh, tantalizes us with as far as the sinful options that are out there. True joy is sanctified when it realizes what is truly valuable. If we consider the word of God awesome and the treasures therein, our joy and our great hope, then we will have the spiritual maturity required to stand in the day of trial. Thirdly, love. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. A related idea, of course, what do we find lovely? While the psalmist finds abhorrent and abominable falsehood, on the other side of things, sort of this, this binary exists, by, by the way, across the whole landscape of human values. On the one side, you either love and you live by deception, or on the other side, you love and live by truth. And uh, we find that this is the great dividing line between sin and righteousness. The psalmist, though, he finds the word of God to be lovely. And therefore, he hates its negation, or he hates that which stands opposed to it. Why does the psalmist find the law of God so lovely, and do we find it lovely? Well, he knows why it is lovely, and perhaps it's even the same author. Many think that Psalm 119 is written by David. Psalm 19 rings true and as a great parallel text in verse 7, David extols the law of God as perfect, reviving the soul. Furthermore, the testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Notice these are the same synonyms, words used for the word of God in Psalm 19, 119. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There's that joy connected to the precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What does he go on to say? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
the joy of the psalmist connected to that of surpassing value, realizes that the law, the testimonies, the precepts, the commandments, and the fear of the Lord and his rules, that is greater than all the treasure of this world. It is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. He goes on to say that they're valuable inasmuch as they warn a servant, keep him on the right path, and fortify him for the trials and temptations of life. Thus awe, joy, and love, these are passions that must be sanctified. They must have as their object the word of God in order for us to stand. Second major point, blessed assurance. Spiritual maturity sufficient for the test of tyranny requires a blessed assurance. Uh, The assurance, of course, is the covenant hope of salvation. And then the blessed aspect is recognizing how amazing this is, a related idea. 164, the psalmist exclaims, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. He goes on, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. This is the blessed assurance that has flooded the soul as we sometimes sing that hymn. With the spiritual maturity required for the psalmist to stand resolute and unwavering even in the face of great persecution. He has determined to give to the law, to the word of God, undivided attention. He expresses this poetically with a seven times a day regiment of praise. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. It's a creative way of saying continually, I am mindful of what you have laid down in your holy word. Or I make it my aim and my diligent study. I make it the meditation of my heart. I make it something I'm passionate to pursue, the fact that your rules are revealed in Scripture. This undivided attention, this seven day times a day reference, is something that indicates to us worship that is worthy of the blessing of the gospel. If the gospel is as great as I've described it and more, and, uh, in, uh, and as the Bible identifies it as a surpassing treasure, then it naturally raises the question, what kind of attention and what kind of response, what kind of uh, worship does our Lord deserve if he is indeed so powerful, so precious, and so glorious, and so beautiful? The psalmist sought to express his worship and devotion with a gratitude proportional to the beauty, the value, the ingenuity, the moral authority, and the holiness of God's rules. While full realization of this vision for worship demands new heavens and new earth conditions, nevertheless, in the meantime, spiritual growth can be measured by progress to that end. Because we might ask, well, what is the worship that is worthy of the Lord, given how glorious He is? Is it possible for us to express that in its fullness this side of heaven? The answer is no, but there is progress to that end, as more times a day are given to a consideration of God's rules, and more attention and persistence is paid, and more accountability is applied to our souls to diligently apply ourselves to the Word of God. Are you guys familiar with that uh, concept that's sometimes popular in I don't know, inspirational, motivational podcasts of the 10,000 hours. Someone can correct me if that number's wrong. It's this idea, if you dedicate 10,000 focused hours to something, invariably you will become an expert in that very thing. You know, I've lost track of how many times over the years 
someone has told me, you know, I'm not as versed in the Word of God as you are, but, well, a lot of times they probably overestimate the, my knowledge of the Scriptures, but they presume that I must have more, you know, dedication to preaching and so forth. Uh, uh, naturally, they see that as a separation from their ordinary life. However, there is nothing stopping any one of us from dedicating that so-called 10,000 hours to the Word of God. What might this look like? Just a few practical applications. Fathers, before you open the scriptures in the evening, you could wake up 30 minutes earlier and write out a devotional. This is something that I find very helpful. If I actually figure out the outline of scripture or try to you know, follow the progress of thinking of the author, by the time I've worked through that, asked the questions, done some of the comparative study, followed a few of the cross-references right there in the margins of my Bible, I have much more familiarity with the text. If I write a few of those things down, I've prepared a mini-sermon, if you will, to deliver to my family that night, and this is actually what I try to do with my sermons each family worship evening. Nothing's stopping any of you fathers, any of you husbands, from doing exactly this. To take that 10,000-hour challenge, if you will, if you want to push out, you know, the, uh, and become an expert in the Word of God. The psalmist was an expert in the Word of God. He had 176 verses to extol its glories as he penned this epic hymn and song. He dedicated himself seven times a day, he says, this poetically as a disciplined approach and a consistent uh, and unfaithful adherence to the law of God and his rules over and over again. And thus, and in, in so doing, you can see the product of his meditations overflowing in the glories of this very psalm itself. So, undivided attention, but also a steadfast peace. There's something else that is gleaned for our souls when we dedicate this kind of attention to the law of God, to his rules, to his word. 165, the psalmist declares it yields for him, yielded for him and others, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Great peace, a steadfast peace, an unwavering peace, a peace that cannot be overthrown, a peace that is, uh, that is up to the task of the greatest of threats, even princes who would persecute us, an invincible peace, in fact, is ours when we dedicate ourselves to the, lo to the love of God's law. Now, in this, we see the gospel. What is peace? Well, ultimately speaking, there can be no peace. And peace is just a temporary psychological crutch. It's just a sort of fake and delusional um, way to negotiate the trials of life unless it is grounded in a reconciliation with the real problem that we face, which is enemy status with the Lord, with God Almighty. This is what true peace is. In Romans chapter 5, the consideration or the problem of enmity with God, the fact that we are his enemies, and then the hope through the gospel of peace, those are compelling themes throughout the course of Paul's entire treatise on the gospel. We see them come to the surface in passages that Jesus preached to us, and there's more to come. In 5.1, therefore, since we have, justified, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and in which we rejoice. Later in Romans chapter 10, our status before the Lord 
in truthful terms, is expanded. And here we see a further reference. Uh, go to chapter 8, I guess. Uh, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, I believe, are the verses I'm looking for here. <clears throat> so to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Minds set on the flesh that walk blindly past the proclamation of the gospel with no heart to its value, they are hostile to God. Everyone who's casual passing by that street preacher I described to you was a reflection of where their heart was, blind to the Lord and indifferent to his truth. They are, in fact, enemies of God, minds set on the flesh, for it does not submit to God's law. That is to say that a soul that is at peace with God submits to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So this is the difference between, ultimately speaking, anxiety and peace, of enmity and life. Now, when the gospel is first proclaimed to us, it does not bring peace. Instead, it brings a message of condemnation and guilt. When the law of God is brought to bear on the heart of the wicked sinner, his first response is, guilty as charged, your honor. With no excuse or leg to stand on, I have violated your righteous rules. And then the judge says, I hear your guilty plea, and I want you to know he proclaims as much in his word that I have slaughtered my son to pay the penalty of your crime. Do you accept his payment as substitute on your behalf? And will you dedicate your life to him forever without end? And with tears of joy streaming down the face of the once condemned, he moves, as we've said recently, from wrath to grace and said, yes, your honor, yes, your honor. And now the law of God has been, uh, the demands of the law of God have been satisfied in his substitute, Jesus Christ. And now he has a different relationship to the law of God. He seeks to honor and follow and to glorify and live in light of this great work that God has done for him. This is the steadfast peace that's available to those who know Jesus Christ. It's spoken of all through the scriptures and it's described in our passage today as a great peace that's connected to the love of the law, where nothing can make us stumble. Final point this morning, a fortified obedience. The trial of tyranny that faces the psalmist can be negotiated. That can, it does not derail him. Why? Because he displays a spiritual maturity. What kind of maturity is required for a test such as this? Sanctified passions, that blessed assurance of the gospel, and thirdly, a fortified or strengthened obedience. 166 through 168, each verse deals with obedience and a fortification for it, that which strengthens our faithfulness to the Lord. And it is three things, faith, love, and theology, if you will. Verse 166, I hope in your, for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. There's a connection, a relationship between hoping for the salvation of the Lord and performing or doing the commandments of God. You see that when we are obedient, obedience springs from faith. There's a relationship between the two. 
Obedience is the sincere expression of trust in someone or dedication to someone or faith in the Lord. To deny the flesh and the felt needs and desires so basic to our fallen humanity. To resist temptation, to reject sin, to repent and to turn from it, and then to take up our cross instead and to follow Christ, that is based on a faith. A faith that the believer demonstrates his conviction of superior authority and superior promises guaranteed him in the gospel of Jesus Christ, related to that superior treasure. While indulging the flesh betrays a heart doubting the goodness and the holiness of God, obedience displays a heart that acknowledges and trusts in the rewards of obedience. A passage that I think perfectly illustrates this principle is in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, expounding the testimony of Moses. The author writes, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was a privileged position. That gained him so much worldly uh, benefit, did it not? The riches of the realm, the uh, obedience of the people, the command and power and the influence and so forth that he would enjoy as being a royal son adopted. Pharaoh's daughter had raised him. No, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here's your options, Moses. You can be despised and the object of people's prejudice. You can be in exile. You can be a shepherd raising sheep. No one knows who you are, a fugitive from the tyrant out in this wilderness somewhere for 40 years until I call you to do something very dangerous. Tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. You can do that. Or you can stay comfortable in the confines of your plush, you know, palace here along the River Nile, eating grapes and fanned by servants all day long and commanding everybody whatever you want. They must follow you in chariot races on the weekends and, you know, long strolls beside the reed bushes and people coming up to you for advice and counsel and so forth. Well, Moses chose to be a shepherd, fugitive, despised, criminal according to the order of the day, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How could he make this choice? He did so, our author writes, because of faith. Faith in a greater king. Faith in a greater realm. Faith in a place, a hope, a future that God had prepared for him. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised. Our author says, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They welcomed their stranger and exile status. How could they have the strength of soul to do this? So the uh, author of Hebrews continues, 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, the trappings of Egypt and uh, Moses's case, who would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe its streets are paved with gold? Do you believe that God has prepared so much riches and joy and wealth for those who love him? And the treasures of the next life cannot be compared to the riches that can be boasted on this side of glory. If you believe so, then you believe in the heavenly one, the better country says God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. There is a relationship between faith and obedience. 
If you have difficulty following the Lord when the pressure's on, when the trials are grim, when the powers that be are your mortal enemy, remember the new heavens and new earth that our King of Kings rules with an iron rod over his enemies and with a spilled blood that pays for the perfect reconciliation for his friends. And herein you will find great strength to obey the Lord even when it's difficult. Love and obedience. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Now, which comes first in a marriage? Typically, God forbid, it would to fall apart. Which is, comes first, divorce or lack of love? Almost in every case, I would say, that would long preceded the formal dissolution of the union was a heart condition where the couple lost their love, their commitment to one another. There is a relationship between faithfulness in the covenant and the love between its members. This is very true in the case of marriage. For those of us who are married in this room, let us pray and to nurture our love for our spouses, just as we pray and nurture the, uh, our love for the Lord, remembering the great joy and the privilege it is to be bound sovereignly as a vow taken before witnesses, before God himself, and that blessed and sanctified union. Marriage is a picture of a covenant it's an analog of the covenant relationship that God has with us. And the relationship between our faithfulness to the Lord is directly connected to our love for him. If we love our Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be faithful to him and we will walk in his ways. And it will hurt our heart and we won't uh, even contemplate divorce, if you will, apostasy, turning away from that once confessed faith. If we nurture a love for the Lord and if that love for him is uh, consistent and growing. My soul keeps your testimonies, our psalmist says, I love them exceedingly, recognizes a relationship between the two. If I'm dubious, if I'm skeptical, if I despise, if I resent the testimonies of the Lord, if I'm not confident that they're true, if I find them to be faulty, if I don't consider the word of God inerrant, if I am embarrassed uh, about them as in light of the wickedness of our culture or the you know, morals of our day, as corrupt and ridiculous as they are, then will I keep them? I'm less likely to. I must love them exceedingly in order for my soul to keep your testimonies. If you uh, get all the way through 176 verses of Psalm 119 and feel like, sheesh, enough already, you know, perhaps you need a heart change. What the psalmist has illustrated for us in his exhaustive and continual and repeated expression of devotion and affection for the law of God is a beating heart within the soul that is strengthened and fortified to endure trials that we ourselves need as much as he did. So let us cling to these words and not dismiss them. Finally, this morning, theology and obedience. Our faith fortifies, strengthens our obedience. Our love for the Lord strengthens our obedience. And our knowledge of God, our understanding of him, or theology, also strengthens our obedience. 168, the psalmist concludes this stanza by saying, I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So imagine yourself, you're three, four, five years old, and, or parents imagine this, your child doing this. Mom comes around the corner, caught red-handed in the cookie jar, and against the rules, your toddler is stealing the sweets, you know, that are on top of the fridge. He's pulled up a stool. He's, you know, erected this temporary scaffold, and there he is with eyes wide and one hand in the cookie jar. 
uh-oh, you say, or whatever, you respond. Now your child does this, or imagine yourself doing this. You take your other hand, one hand in the cookie jar, and your other hand covering your eyes and say, you can't see me. You cover your own eyes and you shout at your parent, you can't see me. How foolish is it that a toddler expects that this strategy will allow them to escape accountability? Is that absurd? Well, it is no less absurd than the kind of flagrant and presumptuous sin that we entertain in our own hearts and certainly the wicked culture around us. It's the same attitude. They do not acknowledge the omniscience, the knowledge of God who sees everything. Nothing escapes his attention, not the number of the hairs on your head or the sparrows that will die this globe over today. Nothing escapes his attention. So to sin in light of his sovereignty is to put your hand over your eyes, standing in the court of God with your other hand dabbling in sin and say, you can't see me. And so this illustrates to us the absurdity of presumptuous sin. On the contrary to that, our psalmist expresses a relationship between his understanding, holding his heart accountable to who God is, the sovereign that sees all, the one who watches over everything, all my ways are before you, he says. Therefore, his obedience is strengthened by remembering the nature and character of God. I keep your precepts and testimonies. When we come to worship each Sunday and the nature and character of God is extolled in song and proclaimed in his word, there is a fortifying opportunity for each of us, remembering the sovereignty of God can allow you to grow in obedience before him. Remember the absurdity of the child who covers his own eyes and seeks to escape accountability for his sin to his parents and then repent and turn from any way that you have done that, sinning with a high hand presumptuously, forgetting or refusing to confess that God is over all and sees all. Now in light of this message, if it finds our heart falling short of the glory of God, and it certainly will because we are all sinners in this room, but for some in the hearing of this message, it may be worse still. It may be that you really cannot relate to the relationship that the psalmist has with the law of God and its author in this, in this passage. We've gone through this and 21 uh, sermons so far. We have one more that remains. If you feel in your own soul the tug of conviction, Lord, I have fallen immeasurably short of your commandments. I do not love your precepts and the law of God. And I beg of you to grow in your sanctification or if you do not have that relationship with the Lord in the first place to confess your sin and then to stand rightly before him and to embrace his law as a vision for your worship. Let us close our transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to submit ourselves before the mirror of your law and to see those areas which yet do not conform to the holiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use the proclamation of your scriptures to cause us to grow in ways that we would turn from our sin and we embrace the calling of holiness and obedience before you. And if they are lost in the hearing of this message, that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ and that their love for you, Lord, would overflow as they realize that in Jesus' death and his death alone is payment for their sin and what it deserves. Thank you, Lord, for every reason to worship. As we think, sing this last song, let us do so with hearts freshly reminded 
of the glory that you so deserve. Let us stand and close in worship this morning.